I said, good morning, church. That's more like it. Uh, uh, welcome to the Porch Community Church. Um, we are so glad you're here. We're incredibly thankful that you've chosen to spend your Sunday morning with us. Um, I'm Justin. I'm uh, on staff here, and I get the privilege of uh, preaching this morning from the book of Exodus. And all God's people said, Leviticus. That's right. And you're like, oh, Leviticus. Oh, this what I showed up for, Leviticus? Hopefully you'll change your mind when we're done, right? So I uh, just want to say, uh, if you're watching online or if you're here in person, if you're a first-time guest, first-time visitor, we just want to say a special uh, welcome to you. Um, we hope that you'll find this place uh, as all of our, our ministry partners and our regular tenders do. It feels like home. Right? Hopefully you'll find that, that it feels like home, um, and it's an amazing community, and we would love to get you connected if this is your first time here. I'm really thankful to be a part of what God is doing on this campus and in Lowndes County through God's people. Amen? Uh, so we're continuing in a series. We're walking through the book of Leviticus, and admittedly, the average Christian tends to avoid this section of Scripture, uh, I think for several reasons. Um, one, people tend to think because it's very old. It's the OT, it's the Old Testament, that in its pre-Jesus, that it no longer applies to us. We tend to overlook it because we feel like it's very old and it no longer applies to us because, hey, Jesus has come and all that stuff doesn't matter anymore. That's one reason. Or maybe we tend to avoid Leviticus and books like it, especially the first few books of the Bible. Maybe we tend to avoid it because maybe on the surface it simply gives the impression that it's an ancient historical narrative that is viewed as helpful knowledge and not much more than that. Helpful knowledge, historical narrative. And if you're a history buff, yeah, you'll like that. But if not, you know, you can skip that. I used to be this way. I used to, admittedly, I used to think this way, but oh, how wrong I was. You see, in case you're not familiar with the book of Leviticus, it's the third book of the Bible and also the third book of what the ancient Hebrews called the Torah, which consists of the first five books of our Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and Torah means law in Hebrew, the, uh, referring to the law revealed to Moses by God at Mount Sinai, handed down to the Hebrew people. So it's all about the establishment of the covenant between Yahweh and his people and that's what Yahweh is what the Hebrews called God. It's his name, his name. It's his name. And, and initiated by God himself and, and how people fared in keeping the covenant that, that they stepped into. I'll give you a little hint if you hadn't read it. They didn't fare very well. Not very well at all. In fact, back in Exodus 19 and 20, as the actual law is being given to Moses... Literally, in the same breath, the ink is not dry on the contract of the covenant. And the people are down in the valley. Moses is up there having this moment with God. God is giving Moses the law. And, and, and this covenant is being signed, sealed, and delivered. And Moses comes down, and he finds the people doing what? For those who know, what were they doing? Oh, they melted their jewelry down, and they made a golden cow. Mm. I heard that. Amen to that cow. Chick-fil-A cow, hopefully. No, like, 
And they're dancing around it like pagans. They're worshiping a God of their own choosing. And before you go throwing stones at them, we do it every single day. And I don't know about you, I'm not melting down any jewelry, but I make anything and anyone of value in my life a little God. I make my family a little God. I make career a little God. I make school a little God. I make relationships a little God. I even make ministry a God. This is the story of a holy God who loves sinful people so much that he makes a way for the relationship that has been broken in the garden to be restored. But time and again, people fail. And there's this clear picture of the gospel that's woven throughout Leviticus and so many of what I would call hyperlinks to the New Testament and the gospel. It's there. We just have to open our eyes. And it's profound. I mean profound. As we jump in this morning, I want to read uh, from Psalm 24. And this passage will, will provide the framework for the message this morning. I want you to read it with me. Psalm 24, 3 through 6. It says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Anybody in here? Is it, we, do, we, do we fit that bill? I don't. I'd love to meet you if you do. Shake your hand. Maybe you can influence me a little bit. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by any false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. I want you to ponder that verse and these questions, especially verse 3. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who can stand? Who can stand? As we journey through this, these few chapters today, I hope that it will be impressed on you the great need for a go-between. Let's take a moment and pray and ask God to help us understand and see what he wants us to see this morning. Father, uh, we offer this time, we give this time to you. Uh, we place our hearts on an altar before you as an offering. God, open our eyes and our ears to things that we have, may have missed or have never seen before, never quite heard before. Even if we've read this a hundred times. Holy Spirit, we need your help. There's no doubt about it. We need your help. If anything good is going to come out of this morning, Holy Spirit, you're going to be the one that, to do it. Not the band, certainly not me, not our volunteers, not our amazing, no one in this room, no human can make this time worthwhile. Holy Spirit, take over. Give me words. Prayer is that you would spark a little bit of revival in us all this morning. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so far in this series, we've sort of been kind of laying the groundwork uh, for the series. The first couple of weeks were sort of an intro and then a kind of an outline of, because this is, there's a lot in this. And you know what, if, if, you, if you were here the last couple of weeks or if you weren't, like 
It's a lot of information, right, Shannon? We talk about it's so much we're throwing at you. And it'd be so easy for you to check out and say, you know what, this doesn't apply to me. What does this even mean? I don't need to know all this stuff. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. It'll enhance your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I promise you that. It'll set your heart ablaze for his presence. I promise you that. Bear with me. This, we're going we're gonna to take an aerial view. We're going to jump around. We've got three chapters, but we're not going to, of course, we're not going to read them, so don't, don't leave right now. Don't do that. We've been trying to get our bearings in this book, Leviticus, and um, it's, it's broken into, into sections, this book. And in week one, we asked this question. Listen, the question was, how can a holy God be in relationship with sinful people? How is that possible? How can a holy, perfect, righteous God be in relationship with broken, sinful people? You and I just take it as a given, don't we? You and I take it for granted. But the book of Leviticus, I, I believe, provides the answer to the question. And as we go a little further today, hopefully you'll start to see the answer come into focus a little bit more. In, in weeks two and three, Shannon laid, the, laid out the concept of the, the sacrificial system. The system put in place by God himself in the early chapters of this book, 1 through 7, in which animals and food was laid on an altar before God and sacrificed. The animals were killed as substitutes and put to death so that the heavy price of sin could be paid. So that the heavy price of whose sin? Our sin. The people's sin. The Hebrews' And, we, and, and, and she touched on this really uh, interesting and, and heavy, uh, the heavy concept of the cost of sin. Right? We don't really, really want to talk about that in our churches much. But the cost of sin, the great cost of sin and the even greater grace of God in the midst of that brokenness. Right? And we also talked last week about the five different kinds of offerings that Israel would present before God. And as part of that sacrificial process for atoning for the people's sins. But this morning, we're, di- we're diving into the middle section of Leviticus, chapters 8 through 10, and talking about the priesthood, the priesthood. Now, I'm real inclined to let my Baptist background take over and give you a nice little catchy title to the message. That's, you know, that's what they like to do. It's like, hey, uh, any, 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 former, any former Baptist in here with me? Uh, you know, it's like the three-point sermon, they all rhyme and they all start with the same letter. I'm not throwing shade. I mean, hey, that's, that's, say I grew up, and I'm like, hey. So I got to come up with a catchy title, right? That's what I do, and mine isn't so catchy, but humor me for a second. So I guess we'll call this message the priest of God and the presence of God. I tried. No rhyming there, but hey, two P words. There you go. Did my best. So we're going to pick up in Leviticus chapter 8. So if you turn there with me, um, we've just finished the first section of the book. Chapters 1 through 7, which God gives a very detailed uh, layout and instructions for all the procedures of the offerings and the sacrifices, right? And it's very detailed. It is overwhelming how detailed it is, and it is on purpose that way. And so now in this section, we see two significant things happening in the beginning of chapter 8. First, the temple is being inaugurated finally. Well, it's really just a tent, but right at that moment in time, their temple was a tent. It was a mobile temple. They packed it up and put it on their shoulders when they went somewhere. But it was their holy temple. 
So the temple is finally being opened. It's the grand opening, so to speak, of the temple. Right? So we see the inauguration and the consecration of the temple. Secondly, we see a new role among the people of God being established. The priesthood. Priesthood. A priest was to be God's representative to the people and also the people's representative to God. You see, there was a great need for someone to be set apart for this role of being the human representation of God to his people. I want to say that again. Are you catching the drift? To be the human representation, the go-between between God and humanity. Sound familiar? There's a gospel hyperlink right there, big time, slapping us right in the face. To be a human go-between between God and man. That was the priesthood. Now, they were obviously human. The one person, the priest was to be the one person in the whole, on the whole earth to go into the one place forbidden by every other human on earth. To be God's mouthpiece to a nation to offer all the sacrifices on their behalf in the hopes that God would show them mercy. Priests would go into the one spot in the center of that temple, in the center of that tent, a little inner room that they called the Holy of Holies. The one place on earth in which God's concentrated presence resided. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to you and me because God's presence now is everywhere. And if you've accepted Christ as Savior, God's presence is here as well. But it was a big deal. God almost balling himself up and limiting his power so he just wouldn't kill everybody that came close. Just like he shrouded Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20 with smoke so that it just wouldn't kill everybody just because of his awesomeness, right? God places his presence on the lid of a box, an altar, in the, in the middle of this tiny little room. How scary is that to be the guy pegged to go in that place? How scary is that? It's mind-blowing. To be the one guy appointed entered the place that's forbidden for everyone else to, to go. Scary, right? So, so in chapter 8, we see the consecration of the, of the temple and the priest, Aaron and his sons, and we'll get to that in a second. In chapter 9, we see the ministry of the priest, what they did in the temple all day. And in chapter 10, we see the failure of the priest, the ultimate failure of humanity, just like it's same song, different verse, right? So I want you to turn with me to Exodus, uh, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 1 and go through 13. And it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron and his sons their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams and the basket containing bread made without yeast. And gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him and, the, and assembled the gathering. At the entrance to the tent, Moses said to the assembly, This is what God has commanded us. Be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward, washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron, tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him, and also fastened the ephod uh, 
with a decorative waistband which tied around him. And he placed the breastplate on him and put Urim and Thummim on the breastplate. Those are precious gems. He placed the turban on Aaron's head and set, and set the gold plate, the sacred emblem, on its front as the Lord commanded Moses to do. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar several times, anointing the altar and all the utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil out on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And then he brought Aaron's sons forward, put tunics on them, tied sashes around them, fastened caps on them, and as the Lord commanded. Wow, this is like a, what for? What for? It's a lot of stuff. What is the significance? What, well, you know, they had priestly clothes to wear, partially to set them apart from the average citizen. To set them apart. To consecrate them. It, part of the consecration was the aesthetic of the clothing they wore. And they just went all out. They just went all out. They said, this person is going to be the one go-between between us and God. He's got to look good. I don't know if they said that or not. Look good, play good, right? Athletes, I don't know. They gotta look good. They gotta look the part. So we gotta set them apart. And all this elaborate stuff they did. And then, so Moses consecrates the first high priest of Israel, his brother Aaron, and his two sons. They are from the tribe of Levi. That's kind of where it's partially where the the, the book of Leviticus gets its name. They were to be a, a line of priests from that one tribe. Why God chose Levi, we're not quite sure. People debate it. But he's God. He can do whatever he wants. Amen? So he chooses the line of Levi. And, and, and the, the priest must come from that line. That, that whole line, that whole tribe was to be a, an inner tribe inside the, the rest of the, the 11 other tribes. And to be set apart, that tribe. And out of it would come the high priest. And, and every descendant would then carry on that work. And it, it right up until today, even. They're outfitted with all these elaborate clothes, and, and they're anointed with oil. By the, first, by the way, the first anointing with oil in, in all of Scripture. And why, you may say, why oil? That's kind of weird. Well, it's symbolic of God's consecration and God's pouring out of his spirit onto a person. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a, it symbolizes being set apart. And oil, the reason oil is important is because it's, it's some of the most concentrated substance on the face of the earth. It, it has life within it. The molecules are the most concentrated life form there is. Plant form. That oil brings life. And so it symbolizes being set apart. When they pour that oil over them, you ever been, anybody in here been anointed with oil? It just symbolizes God setting you apart. So they did all these things. They did more. And they did, they, then they started to present the offerings, as, as was mentioned in the prior chapters. Um, and, and, in, and, so, and then in chapter 9, we see that Aaron and his sons begin the work in the temple. So what do they do? Well, in Leviticus, Leviticus 9, 7 through 11, it says, Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering, your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came to the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. His sons brought the blood 
to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. On the, on the altar he burned the fat, the kidneys, and the long lobe of liver from the sin offering. Yikes. Very graphic, I know. As the Lord commanded Moses, in the flesh and hide he burnt up outside the camp. And then skipping down to verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all of them. And listen to this part. In verse 24, it says, Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Fire literally shoots out from that little room and consumes the burnt offering and and, and all that was on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted for joy and they fell face down. This is both a scary thing and a good thing. It's, I mean, I don't know about you, but if I see fire shooting out from anywhere and, and no one's got a blowtorch in their hand or some wood, it's pretty frightening. Because, of course, God is displaying his awesome power. It's pretty terrifying. It's terrifying. And he's, but, but the good part is he's accepting the offerings by consuming them with the fire. That was the thing that they were joyful about, and they were hopeful that God would accept their offerings by consuming them with that fire. You see what I'm saying? It's frightening, and yet it is a good thing at the same time. Hang with me. And this means the sins of the people were now forgiven. Of course they would shout for joy and fall on their face, wouldn't you? So after this seven-day period of consecration of the temple, what should have been a huge celebration, this, if this were the end of the story, it would be awesome. But it's not the end of the story. What should have been a day of celebration, on the very same day, something terrible happens in chapter 10. Really bad. On the eighth day, Aaron's two sons go into the the holy place, and they disobey God. They make up their own liturgy. They make up their own process of sacrifice, and God kills them on the spot. Leviticus 10, starting in verse 1, it says, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers. You guys know what a censer is? If you grew up Catholic in here, anybody grew up Catholic, you know what a censer is? It's kind of like a a bowl attached to some uh, some chains, and and there's incense in it, and they wave it around, and, and, and and it fills the room. That's what a censer is. He said they took their censers, put fire in them, added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before God. Contrary to what God commanded. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. The New Living Translation says it this way, I will display my holiness through those who come near me. I will display my glory before all the people. So Aaron's sons go into the tent. They disobey God by not following the the instructions that God gave, and they were killed. By the way, fire is a prominent theme in in the Bible. If 
before we go any further, I know that maybe for some of you it seems a little harsh. It seems a little harsh that, oh, they, they, they made one slip up and now they're dead. What, so what hope do I have? I slip up every day. I slip up every day. One slip up seems unfair, God. Remember, God set them apart to be human representatives of a holy God. They were to live differently than everyone else. They couldn't do what everyone else did. Sound familiar? You and I as Christ followers, we just don't have the right to do just whatever we want to do. You and I are set apart. We're consecrated. We don't have the right to do whatever we want to do and call ourselves followers of Christ. We just don't. I don't. And if I have given my heart to Jesus, I am to be a human representative of Christ on this earth. I'm not Jesus, but I'm to, I'm to represent Jesus to the world. How well do you and I represent Jesus in our current living life situations? Um, admittedly, I, I don't do very well. And I'm a pastor. So if it seems harsh, remember that God doesn't owe us anything. And God's holy place, the one place where humans couldn't waltz in, tiptoe in, and do whatever they wanted, God was going to keep that place clean. Amen? So if it seems harsh, just back up, take a step back and understand there's a holy God that cannot allow sin and disobedience to be anywhere near him. Here in Leviticus and in the Old Testament, fire consumed literally, literally. It was a scary thing and a good thing all at the same time. And, and the people had great reverence for that fire. They were, they were like, oh, holy God. God, you're holy. You're right in what you say. You're right in what you do. You can do anything you want. We're going to be reverent. In the New Testament, right up until today, the fire still consumes, but not literally. See, in Leviticus, the fire of God's presence consumes and purifies. The fire of God's presence still does the same today, but in a spiritual sense. And the fire, God's presence is fire. Young people, using your slang, it's fire. Sorry, I tried. God's presence is a fire. It is a consuming fire. And it'll set your life ablaze if you allow him. In a good way. He'll burn away all that crud in your life. He'll purify your heart and your mind. He'll cleanse you from all that sin. And he'll set you on your way as a representative, a human representative for Christ in this world. Not perfect by any means, but a representative of the grace of God. Amen? That's what we are after. And we need it, right? We need God's consuming fire. Fire is both dangerous and good all at the same time. Kind of like the sun. I love the illustration that Dr. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project gives on this subject. He says the sun is good because it brings life. It's good. Without the sun, we don't have life on this earth. But it also has the power to destroy. Get too close and you will die. There's no doubt about it. Doesn't make it bad. Just makes it the sun. It's not the sun's fault you got too close. Doesn't make the sun bad because it'll consume and burn you, burn you to a crisp. It just makes it the sun. Isn't a great illustration of God and his presence and his might and his power? 
Doesn't make God bad that if you get, if, if at this point in scripture you got too close and you got too careless, that his, just his presence would burn you up. I mean, God literally had to, I mean, it might be treading a, a theological line for some of you, but it, you know, it, there's no way God could not have not limited himself just so that man could get near him, right? Think about that for a second. The cloud over Mount Sinai, the smoke, was just to shield the people from just being consumed altogether. Think about this for a minute. How awesome is the presence of God? The same God that did that is in the room right now, in the room. And God is still a God that is a consuming fire to purify, to cleanse. I'm really thankful that God chose to come near. Because in the old Levitical system, God made a way for man to come near. And we failed. See, God's presence is good, but also dangerous. Israel needed priests to be the go-between. And even they had to do things a certain way or they would perish. By the way, how how did we ever get to the place in this in in modern Christianity where we treated the holy presence of God so nonchalantly? How did we get to that place? Friends, how did we get to that place? Well, we just come in any old way. Oh, God understands. Yes, of course he does. But the power of God and the presence of God is transformative. It always is never neutral. And if I don't leave here different today, guess who? Guess who it's on? It's on me. Not because of any great sermon you're going to hear or worship. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with a holy God who's here to meet with you in the space that you're in, in your mind, in your heart, wherever, whatever space that is. I know we're broken. I know you're coming in with your stuff. There's an altar where you sit. There's an altar up here. And all God desires is the sacrifice of worship, the sacrifice of yourself to be a living sacrifice. He's not going to kill you if you consecrate yourself to the Lord. No, he wants you to live as God's representatives in this world. How did we ever get to the place where we treat the presence of God, a.k.a. church on a Sunday morning, with such nonchalance? In this day and age, we somehow see nearness to God as not a gift, but a birthright. We just see the nearness to God. Oh, we can get close to God anytime we want. We see the presence of God as not a gift, but a birthright. Friends, we, are no, we have no right inherently to the presence of God. None. And yet, Jesus came to bring God's presence near and to make his home in, in all of us, to make us all temples so that you and I wouldn't have to be afraid of approaching God, but still to approach God with holy reverence. Because the same God that consumed with literal fire in Leviticus is the same God. God has not changed. The way in which man comes to God has changed. You see? God has not changed his mind. God still hates sin. And God still is a holy God. But the method in which we come has changed. We need to recover a sense of holy reverence for the presence of God. Amen? Could we all agree on that? 
It's going to take baby steps, I know, but we got to get there. We got to get there. If Lowndes County, if the lost people of Lowndes County will ever see Jesus, we have to get back to the place where God's presence matters to us. Plain and simple. The crisis in Genesis and really in all of human history is that nearness to God was lost in that garden. Nearness to God was lost. When Adam and Eve sinned, and as we sin in our lives, nearness to God is lost. Through our sin, the relationship has been broken between God and us. In Leviticus, God wants to restore the nearness, but humanity failed. You see? And in the priesthood, God established a way for humans to come near to him. But in Christ, the great high priest... God has come near to us. See, Jesus, when Jesus came, he became the permanent high priest, the permanent go-between between God and man, the, the one who wouldn't fail, the one who wouldn't come into God's presence and waltz in there nonchalantly. No, even Jesus, who is God in flesh, reveres God. Think about that for a minute. Even Jesus, who is God in flesh, still reveres the Father. So how much more should you and I? Revere the Father. Amen? Think about that. Praise God, Jesus is our great high priest. But not only that, not only is Jesus the great high priest, he calls us all to be little priests. Lesser priests, lesser representatives of Christ to this world. And if we're not striving for that and scratching and clawing towards that, then Something's wrong with my life and my heart. I need a heart check majorly this morning. First Peter chapter 2. Uh, Shannon read this a couple of weeks ago in her message. First Peter chapter 2, so good, 9 and 10. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may de- declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the gospel answer to the problem in Leviticus. That, that question, how can God, a holy God and sinful man, relate to each other? How can they have a relationship? This is the answer. The answer is the priesthood. The priesthood is the vehicle in which God comes near. The priesthood is the, the vehicle that God used to come near and to allow man to come near him when we didn't deserve it. Though the practices of the book of Leviticus do not necessarily apply to us, we're not, no one's, God is not calling us to put an innocent animal on an altar and slit its throat, splatter its blood everywhere. I know that's graphic, but it's graphic for a reason. If you, if, do you, know, you know why it's graphic, right? It should stun us how heavy the price, the penalty for sin should stun us. It's the, the, the detail is in there to make it more heavy for you and I and, and make it weighty for us to understand that, we, that all, we are in need of a representative before holy God, right? It should stun us. And we should take it to heart. Great high priest Jesus has restored the nearness to God and because of that we can enter in this morning. Right now, holy reverence, and all God desires is you.
be a living sacrifice, Romans 12, Romans 12, holy and acceptable to God. Just your heart. It's all he requires. Just your heart. How do you come near to God? How do you come near to God? I mean, do you even think about it? How do we come approach a holy God? Do we come with fear and reverence? Fear meaning, God, you are, you're an awesome God and I'm not. Not fear as in I'm afraid that you're going to burn me up with a physical fire. No, that's not happening. Now, the fire will consume, but it'll consume spiritually. It'll, it'll purify you and set you ablaze. How do you come to God? With reverence? With honor? With fear? Or do you come by repetition or habit like most Western Christians do on a Sunday morning? I'm not throwing stones. I'm with you. I'm right with you. Do you check the box of attendance? Or do you come into God's place understanding that we're before a holy God? How can we reclaim that sense of reverence and zeal for the house? And we see this in Leviticus. See, God's presence is both good and dangerous. Dangerous because if you, if you come into the presence of God and you lay your heart bare before God, he will change you and transform you. If you want that, that's, here, that's open for you this morning. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. How can you and I come near to God and not be consumed? Well, it's not possible. I'll ask the question that I asked at the beginning from Psalm 24. Listen, it says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Jesus, our great high priest, has made nearness to God possible. Isn't that amazing this morning? He's made nearness to God possible. Nearness is what God wants. Nearness. Closeness with humanity. Closeness with you individually. God has paid a heavy price through Jesus Christ to have nearness with you. How will you approach God this morning? How will you approach him? There's still time this morning. Still time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, and thank you for your presence. Thank you that we can come uninhibited. We don't have to filter your presence through a, a someone else. We can come. And we have come. Even if we have come nonchalantly. Prayer is that, prayer is that you would do something new in my heart individually that your fire would consume my heart again, that I would leave here with a holy reverence and also a desire and a hunger for your presence, that I would understand that everywhere I go, I take your presence with me as a, as a Christ follower. And to, be, to be a priestly representative to the world, everyone in here, from youngest to oldest, if we know Jesus, we are now consecrated as high priests. We're not the, the great high priest, but we are a reflection of the great high priest. And his name is Jesus. We need a freshness in our lives, God. We need you to come and consume all the trash in our life. Cleanse and purify us. And we offer an offering of praise. 
of worship, true, authentic worship, in whatever manner you, Holy Spirit, see fit. And as we sing, and as we worship, pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.